Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to read that last section of that third chapter. We're done with the digression, and um, we've spent several weeks there, and we're ready to head on. Boy, does this, Bible, this, this little intermediate section between the digression and uh, chapter 4 really, really sets us on fire for what's to come in chapter 4. And it's in chapter 4 um, that you're going to be challenged to live a life that God's calling you to live. Uh, you see it there at the top of chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Oh, wow. Worthy of your calling. Uh, that's, a heavy, that's a heavy burden to lay on a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be worthy of that calling. So he's uh, getting us ready for that here in chapter 3 at the end of it. I believe he's, he's uh, getting us ready to understand what it means to be the church, what it is to live out your calling, what it is to live out the life that Jesus has for you to live. So let's read from verse 14 in chapter 3. Through the end of the chapter, we're not going to treat it all today probably, but uh, we're necessarily going to look at that first couple of verses. Chapter 3, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we do so humbly before this text. We look to be fed from the truth of Scripture. We look to be empowered. We look to be challenged. Father, speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Overcome this pastor's simple words this morning. And speak directly, fill the hearts of your people with the truth, glory, and beauty of your word so that they would know you, their God, and that they would fear you as God and love you and cling to you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Paul starts this out in an interesting fashion. You know, we just came through chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and it is in verses 1 through 13 that Paul sets back a digression that kind of helps the church at Ephesus and us today understand why he was suffering the way he was suffering. And we spent several weeks in that passage, and we saw many things that kind of hits its height there in verse 10 through the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church. And then it just grows from there on out because God, Paul's going to tell us what God has got in store for the church and he's going to prepare our hearts and uh, he's going to challenge us literally 
Um, he's going to challenge the life you're living today. So I see that, uh, the beginning of that in this first couple of verses in 14 and 15. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And when he says for this reason, he's actually going back to chapter 2, the things that he had just finished. As I said, verses 1 through 13 are a digression. They are meant to explain further some of the things that he's getting ready to say. And now he's going to say what he was getting ready to say. He's like a long-winded preacher that talks too much. You can laugh at that. You can even point and say, that's you, man. <laughs> Thank you, Sonny. So he, he gets ready here with this second prayer, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And this is the second of two prayers. And it is for those who, do you see it there in verse 14? I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, and it's only for those from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. It's for the family of God. That's why I named this thing, this, this sermon, Familia Affair. I got a little C, I don't know, probably not correctly, a little Italian in there. It's so, because we're part of the familia, right? Okay, I'll give it up. I'll stick to preaching. But we are part of the family of God, and that's expressly what Paul is talking about. The family from every family uh, of God in heaven and on earth. Paul is not talking about everybody. We're going to get into that. So the blessing that Paul petitions God's favor for and the resultant unity and the fellowship that should follow his petitions are only those which belong to the children of God. You see them there, let's just enumerate them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them this morning because we're going to go back and make sure that we are children of God. We're going to look at verse 16, or well, let's just run through them quickly. Uh, after 15, you have verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner beings. He wants you to have... Paul wants you to understand that the children of God's family have a spiritual power that will just blow your mind. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but you're going to have a spiritual power that you can tap into that's like no other power that this earth knows. And in verse 17, he goes on to say something about the presence of Christ indwelling the believer. That is that you will be and you can be so close to Christ and he's so much a part of you that you can have hope and power from understanding that Jesus does live and that all the promises of the scripture that Jesus gives, you know, as he lives through the gospel, as he goes to the cross, all of his power, all of his strength can be right there indwelt in you so that when the burdens of the world come, that power is right there and you won't falter. That's another heavenly blessing that the believer receives, the family of God receives. And it leads to, as you see in verse 17, an unshakable faith from Christ's immediacy. And it's a deeply rooted in verse 17 and grounded faith that it exhibits and, ex and encounters love. Because love is faith, hope, and love remain, these three, but the greatest is what? And the greatest is? The greatest is? Yeah, we're going to have to work on that. Verse John 4.18 says there's no fear in love. This is what I like about love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's God's love for us. And when we understand that love for us, and I think about a little children, a little child here that has done something wrong and he approaches his father 
And he does this, just doesn't understand because he has no children of his own. And I didn't understand this until I had, what do we got, six children? Six children of our own, right? You don't understand love, I don't think, somehow until you understand love for your own child and you understand the love that God has for his child. And he's, he's, if you're in Christ, he's not going to condemn you because you're his child and he loves you perfectly. And, and because of that, you can have no fear. You're going to make some mistakes, but your daddy's still going to love you. You're still going to be a part of his family, right? Perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love, John says. We love because he first loved us. So we're being perfected. We are those who are being perfected in that love. And that's why Paul says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in that because that's where you get your strength. That you grab a hold of all the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, and all the fullness of God. That's what he wants you to have. He don't want you to be no wink, wimpy Christian. He wants you to live in glory. Yeah, right, I'll do that again. Wait. He wants you to live in glory in this life. He wants you to go after everything that's true, good, and beautiful. He don't want you walking around with your head down fretting about the next bad thing to come. I was talking with one of our members this morning like this. Is, you know, we, the, he, she was talking about how some of the things that happen in our culture and, and how God's in total control of that and how they would never do that if they knew God. No, Paul wants us to walk and live in joy. He wants us to know all the fullness of God. Do you see it there in that passage? All the fullness of God. The, the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, all the fullness of God that we have in this place, that you'd grab a hold of those things and run with it, man, that you'd be the church, that you'd be the hope in this generation, that other people would look at you and go, man, I want that, because they have no fear. They live this life. They don't have the fear of the things that we have fear of. They've, they've got power that we don't have. They've got faith that we don't have. They've got a, an ethic. They've got, something, they've got something that motivates them that other people don't have because Jesus lives in us. That maturity he's going to go on to talk about in verse or in chapter 4, it, it, it is the fullness of God that you would mature, that, that, that you would comprehend all the benefits, that you would comprehend the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the stability that comes from that, the assuredness that you get from all those things. Those are all for members of the family of God. That's where this passage starts out. He says, I'm praying on my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is, is named. Beloved, for God's family, there's no lack of anything. You understand that? There's no lack of anything. God has supplied you with everything that you need. Only gain in Christ. Even death is gain. Even death is gain. Nothing. Not one thing can overcome God's children. If you're a child of God, brother, nothing can overcome you. Amen. Right? Amen. <laughs> Grab it. Nothing can overcome God's children. Nothing in this world. Nothing in the other world. Nothing in a world yet that's to come. Nothing above. Nothing below. No principalities. No powers. No angels. No rulers or wicked places. Nothing can overcome the children of God. Not one thing, beloved. The church are those that will overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. And if you want to turn there now, go ahead and do that. We're going to spend some time in 1 John. I've got a lot of passages today. But we're also going to spend some time in the book of John. 
John and 1 John. So if you turn over there now, keep your finger in that so that we can see these verses. We are the ones that overcome the world. The world's not going to overcome us. Wait, it looks like the world's getting really bad out there, Pastor. I don't know what you're saying because it looks really dark. No, we're the ones that overcome the world. The world is not going to overcome us. Those are the promises of Scripture. Beloved, that's the church he wants you to be. He wants you to be the kind of church, and I don't know if you've researched this. I have because I, it's like it's my job, you know. I'm a pastor. i got to research these things. But if you look at some churches, there are people moving from parts of the country where it's really difficult to other parts of the country where there are successful churches. When there is a successful church like Paul's getting ready to talk about in chapter 4, other people pick up their lives and go and raise their children there because of the church. That's what he's going to call you to, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Get ready for it. He's going to do that. First John 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That is, let me paraphrase, everyone that's in God's family is going to overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? It is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We are those who walk by faith, not by sight. If we walk by sight, we're going to be full of fear. Because it's faith that brings us into the love. Faith that brings us into relationship with Christ, into the presence of Christ. It's faith that allows us to see the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width, and the fullness of God. It's faith that brings all these things. And it's faith that gives us the love that surpasses understanding. We know God. If we were all his family and we're not reactionaries like the world becomes reactionaries because we serve a sovereign God. We don't have to react the way the world reacts because we know that our God's in control. He is our Father. We are His children. And He will provide for His children. God's family lives in joy and in love, not fear and resentment like the world. We live in love and joy because we've overcome the world. So make no mistake, Paul is praying for God's family, and this passage picks up from where we left off in chapter 2, specifically as it pertains to the family of God. If you go back to chapter 2 and begin there, I don't know, let's, uh, let's start in verse 18. Just open this up a little bit. Back to Ephesians 2, verse 18. Keep your finger in 1 John. Get busy, we're going to turn pages. For through him, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, let's remind ourselves what he's talking about. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. Uh, we translated that into all different types of ethnicities because that's what the word Gentile means. It's ethnos in the Greek. It uh, sounds like our word ethnicity or ethnic because it is where we get our word ethnicity or ethnic. It is uh, sometimes translated in scriptures as nations, but it's saying that God has joined together the Jews, the people of God, with the people who were not of God, and that is the nations, all ethnicities. So what Paul is telling us in chapter 2 and what we've got to put back in our mind as we look at the family of God is that family is varied, it's multicolored, it's, 
It has different social strata, people of different means. It has people of different gender, right? It's got male, female. It's got slaves. It's got free. It's got white. It's got black. It's got smart. It's got people like me. It's got, right, rich, poor. It's got all those things. God has brought all that together, and the way that he brought all that together was through Christ. That is his family. That's what Paul is praying for, this very specific family. So you're no longer strangers, verse 19, and aliens. In other words, you're not stuck outside the promises of God any longer, but you become citizens. That's that word nation. It's playing off of your citizens of God's nation. He's using several metaphors here. He's using a building. He's using a family. He's using a nation. You become citizens and nations and members Members, you see it there, verse 19? You would become members of the household of God. That is the organism. That is the Catholic household of God all over the world, the universal church. But you also should and must become members of the local organization or the expression of the national organism, right? And you were built. On foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's the truth of Scripture. We're going to pick that back up in, in 4.12 when we get there. Christ Jesus himself was the cornerstone of that building. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In other words, there's a unity and a love and a bond and a spirit outside of human nature that comes And that's why Paul's beginning to pray that you would receive that so you could be the church. In him, you were also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's why he's connecting the Spirit back up there in uh, 3, uh, 17 or 16 to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit. It's the Spirit working in us that brings us together, that allows us to be the church that God's called us to be. It, It brings us into the family of God. This is the... God's family that he is praying for, but it leaves us uh, with just this. It leaves us with the knowledge of just this. Those apart from Christ have no hope for the heavenly blessings imparted to the believers that Paul's praying for. Let me say that again. Those apart from Christ are not part of this family and have no hope for the heavenly blessings imparted To the believers here. Those apart from Christ will not benefit from any spiritual power. Beloved, I warn you this morning. This is going to be difficult the next few minutes. Because I don't want any of you to miss out. I don't want Paul's prayer to skate over the top of you. Because you have not foundationally hooked yourself into the family of God. Those apart from Christ will not benefit from any spiritual power. They will not benefit from any presence of Christ. They will not know the love that surpasses understanding. They will never be able to comprehend the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width, and the fullness of God. The saints can only comprehend these things. They cannot fathom these things. The saints understand the fullness of God's family, but those without Christ will never understand the fullness of a family. Why? Because they are cursed in their sin. Apart from Christ, they have no hope of the unity and fellowship that Paul will speak about in chapter 4. Apart from Christ, they will have no hope of maturity and assuredness and stability of God's sovereignty. Apart from Christ, they will have no hope of life. 
None of it, because they are not in the family of God and under the prayers of Paul. Beloved, I just have one question I want to ask you this morning. As you sat here this morning, are you assured that you're in the family of God? As you sat within the sound of these words, do you have assurance that you're under Paul's prayers? It's a question I ask each and every one of you sitting here today. Do you have that assurance? Is Paul praying for you? Because there are two distinct families. Genesis 3.15. You don't need to go there. Just let me do it. Genesis 3.15. Here's what it says. God is handing out the curses because of the sin that's taken place in the garden. And he says... I will put in, he says this to, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. There's the start of the two families. Do you see it? The offspring of Satan, the devil, and the offspring of the woman, Eve that would become Christ. We have the devil's family and we have those who will be saved by Christ who are God's family. That's who Paul's praying for. Then jump with me, if you will, to John chapter 8. Not too far. You can do it. John chapter 8. Keep your finger in John because we're going to go back to that. And first John. I know. I said I was going to keep you busy. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus himself gives us an illustration of both families. John chapter 8, verses 44, uh, maybe it's more, whatever, but he is having this argument with the, with the Pharisees. He's having this argument with the rulers of Jerusalem, and they're saying that they're in the family of God because they're offspring of Abraham. And Jesus is saying, uh, verse 42, Jesus said to them, if, if God were your father, if God were your daddy, so to speak, you would love me, for I came from him. And I am here, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me, verse 43. So why don't you understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear the truth, my words? And that's the difference between the two families, by the way. Beloved, is is one family understands God's truth, the other family will not hear God's truth. We're going to see more of that. But here's the capstone, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see that? There are two families. The devil's family and God's family. But there's hope, beloved. There's hope. We were all born into sin because of the sin of our first father, Adam. We were all born, if you go back to Ephesians just quickly and look at chapter 2 there, it says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why? Because you belonged to the family of dead people, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in who? The sons of disobedience. We were all sons and daughters of disobedience before Christ came, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, not God's children of life, but devil's children of wrath. We were in sin. But there's hope, beloved. There's hope. John chapter 3 shows us that hope. Go back to John. 
John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. In other words, you were part of God's family. Jesus answered him, answered Nicodemus, and he said, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? Born again. Born into a new family. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Just mark it down. You don't have to turn there. It's the adoption that takes place when we are in Christ. We are adopted. We are moved from the family and the power of Satan into the family and the power as children of God. We become children of God by being born again. Are you born again? Do you know what it means to be born again? This is the heart of the gospel. Because you have no power to change your life from the devil to God. You have to be born again. Your heart has to be changed. It has to be regenerated. He goes on in verse 4. He says, Nicodemus didn't understand these things, by the way. They were difficult for him. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Well, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be born into God's family is what he's saying. How can a man do that? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? No, Nicodemus, it's not about being born again by the water. It's about being reborn by the Spirit, Jesus is going to say. Jesus answered and he says, truly, verse 5, chapter 3, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen in the Greek, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. There's the two families. If you're born of flesh, you're under the sin of Adam, you have confirmed that sin in yourself, and you are a children of, child of the devil until you place your faith in Jesus Christ and become born again. That's why the gospel is good news, because you live and pledge allegiance to the family of the devil and be under certain wrath of the holy God. You can turn then from that sin of yours and see that Christ is the payment and the propitiation for your sin and be saved. You can repent of your sin and be baptized and you will receive life. You will receive assurance of all the familia blessings of God. You will be in the center of Paul's prayer. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth. Beloved, you'll be adopted and to the family of God. Please understand this morning that God is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. He punishes sin. His wrath will be eternally poured out on those who choose to pay for their own sins or his wrath was eternally poured out, was, uh, was momentarily poured out on his son Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And God will give you a new heart. He'll give you a new life. He'll give you new desires. He'll change you from the inside out. Keep your finger in there and just turn over a few pages with me to Titus chapter 3. First, second Timothy and then Titus chapter 3. Here's the transaction that takes place when you hear the preaching of the gospel you understand that God is holy and he can't be before sin. You understand that you're in the family of the devil and that God will crush all of his enemy and that is the family of the devil someday. You see your need. You see that God is holy. You see that your sin is evil 
and you see your need is Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel, that God has provided a way for you to be changed. Beloved, do you sit here this morning as a person of God's family or the devil's family? That question's going to ring throughout. Have you been born again? Or are you still in the same family? Has your heart been changed, beloved? Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. Do you see it there? For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to our passions and our pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Boy, that sounds like the world, doesn't it? That's, that is the world and the world's family. That's exactly why the world looks like it does, because the envy and the living in pleasure, passing our days in malice, being hated and hating one another. That's the world. That's the devil's family. That's not God's family. He's going to draw stark contrast to it. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified in his grace, we might become what? You see the word? You weren't following along, were you? We might become heirs. Who heirs? Who, who is the heir to a family's fortune but the sons and daughters of that family? That we might become heirs to all of the spiritual blessings that God has for us. And I'll just read another passage of scripture that says this so eloquently. It's in Ezekiel 36. God says, I'll vindicate my holy name. I'll take you, that is my family, God's children, God's people, I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's this regeneration. That's this changing of your heart. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put that within you and I will remove the heart of stone, the hard heart that is that is refused me, I'll remove that heart and I'll put one of flesh that loves me from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. I'll adopt you. I will be your my father and you will be my son and my daughter. I will do this work in you and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. God's promises to his family members are never-ending. I want you to be sure, beloved, that you're saved this morning. I want you to be sure that you're born again. I want you to be sure that you're a member of the family of God. You ready for a little test? Let's go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. just a few a little bit before the book of revelation first john chapter 1 let's start in verse 5 this is the message chapter 1 first john verse 5 this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that god is light and in him is no darkness 
If we say we have fellowship in him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let me translate that just a little bit for you. If we say that we're in God's family, yet we remain in our sin and live and love our sin and remain in the world, we are not in him. The greatest mark of someone who is truly in the family of God is that they're pushing sin. They can no longer stand sin. I like to say it's psychological pain because when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you've got to push sin out of your life. The pressure to quit sinning will become so great, your conscience will be conflicted, and you will push sin out of your life. It will no longer be a normal way of life. It will no longer be what you just do. And verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, in other words, if we're walking towards a sinless life, if we're working towards those things, we have fellowship with one another. That is, beloved, we have fellowship with other members of the family of, of, of God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, continues to cleanse us from all sin. That is, as we fellowship one with another, as we work our sin out of our lives, that the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us and give us power over the sin in our lives. And just keep your finger there because I'm going to turn over to Matthew 5.30. In other words, we'll begin to mortify our sin, beloved. This is the one principle that most believers just fail to recognize that sin has to be killed. It has to be mortified. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already done that in his heart. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. It became, this, is, this, is the, this is the remedy for that. Not literally. I don't want you to go poking your own eyes out this morning. But this is how you need to look at sin in your life because it is that measure that you're measuring whether you're in the house of, or in the family of God or not. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. Get away from sin because it's a fire that will take your life. If your right eye causes you to sin, poke it out. Get rid of it. Throw it away, for it's better you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Are you in the family of God? Are you under Paul's prayer this morning? Have you been born again? And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says very specifically that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will propitiate our sins. God will forgive you. He will give you a heart so that you can obey him, so that you can live unashamed before him. God will give you a new heart. In 1 John chapter 2, let's look at verses 3 through 5. And this we have known, this we know that we have come to know him. And perhaps this is uh, secondary only to the test that I just gave you is that we push sin out of our life because if we're pushing sin out of our life, we're following his commandments. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Because whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's just a liar. Who's the father of lies? 
He's in the wrong family. It's just a little test. It's for you, beloved. The Apostle Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I wonder how much we do that. I wonder how much time you spend on that this week compared to at anything else. Work out your own salvation, Paul says in Philippians 2.14, by the way. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. John 14, 15 through 16 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. In other words, whenever you are truly saved and the Spirit is in, in you, you're going to get another helper. You're going to get another helper to help you walk in the way that you need to walk, to help you be the person you're going to, to help you receive all that God has for you to receive, all those heavenly benefits that Paul is praying for. It says it again in John chapter 15. John talks a lot about this, doesn't he? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, whenever we keep Jesus' commandments, it's akin to his keeping his Father's commandments. It means we have the same Father, doesn't it? We're not a liar, like it says in 1 John, and a member of that family, but a member of the family that keeps his Father's commandments. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be in you. And this is where our joy is when we walk the way that God wants us to walk. And that joy will be full, will be like Jesus. Back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's the warning. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's not from that family, but it's from the other family. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. The same gospel which melts the, some person's hearts hardens others in their sin. Romans 6 says you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. There's no in-between. If you're playing the in-between, you've already made your choice and you're playing in the wrong family. So the choice is yours today. You hear the gospel. You hear it preached every Sunday. You know it. You have the opportunity to fall before the throne of Christ, to be reconciled to him. Even this day, you hear it again. I ask you, to what family this morning do you belong? The gospel call goes out. Joshua answered the gospel call. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's how certain you want to be of it. You want to be as certain as Joshua was. Eve thought she had paradise. Though she had paradise, it was not good enough. She looked at the tree, and, and Genesis chapter 3 says she looked at that tree and desired it for wisdom. She wanted to have that wisdom. It was not enough to listen to the voice of God and listen to the voice of her husband, but Adam did the same thing. 
He put off the protection and the leadership that God gave him and he was supposed to have and do for his wife. And he listened to the voice of his life and he plunged the whole human race into sin. I'm telling you this morning, do not put off the truth of God and offer to God. It goes out to you this morning in the gospel. Yet time and time again, the gospel is offering and time and time again, you come to church in your heart. The truth that you know you live in your life, you see fit, you live your life the way you want to because you do it the way you want to, knowing that the gospel offers that salvation. You build your kingdom and not God's kingdom. You labor for that which satisfies you and not which satisfies God. That, that, that moth and rust does corrupt, not the uncorruptible things of the goodness of your labors in the gospel. And when we do that, we presume on God. Romans 2 says these words, Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? A lot of people mistake. A lot of people say that true love is tolerant. They're wrong. True love is long-suffering. God's not going to continue to tolerate your sin. His love, it will not make him tolerate your sin. His love does Invoke his mercy, which puts off judgment for your sin, which puts off judgment for your sin if you're in Christ onto his son, Jesus Christ. But he will not be tolerant forever of your sin. Love is not tolerant. Love is long-suffering. It's meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to his family through the gospel. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed for he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Oh, beloved, are you in the family of God? That passage ends in these simple words. It's one of the biggest sins that we commit in culture today. That passage ends in these simple words in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. All sinners will get their just punishment. And all believers will be conquered because Christ took God's wrath. On your behalf. God shows no partiality. He doesn't care your social status. Your skin color. Your gender. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for those. Who have turned from their sin. And trusted and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God. The God who is eternal. The God of the Bible, the God of all creation, is the God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Beloved, he is the Father of all those who will be in Christ and those who turn from their sin and damnation to God. And he will be that prodigal father that though his son went away into a far country and squandered all of his wealth when he returned or when he turned from his sin and he returned to his father, he came to find that his father was standing at the gates of the city waiting to embrace him with the love that he had for him. He threw his arms around the neck of the prodigal son and he said, This is my son. He was lost, but now he is found. He was dead, 
but now he's alive. And what ensued? A celebration. They killed the fatted calf. They called in all the family. They called in all the family of God and they killed the fatted calf and there was dancing and there was drinking of wine and making merry because the kid that was dead is now alive. Beloved, whose family are you part of this day? Whose family? Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close today. My prayer is that every person sitting in this auditorium feels the weight of the knowledge of their sin and that one or two things happens that they don't have the assurance that Christ died for them or that they do. Father, I just pray that you speak to them where they are and if they're carrying the burden of their sin this morning, I pray that you work through these words that they would fall on their knees and reconciliate, cry out, Father, save me. And I know that when they do and they turn from that sin and repent, that you'll be like that prodigal father. You'll standing there waiting at the gate to give them a hug around their neck. Scripture says that all of heaven celebrates. All of the angels rejoice when one son returns home. Oh, Lord, do that work in your people this day. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.